0: With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the privacy Professor. We're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello,
1: and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 38th episode of my show. I use my show to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also strive to provide listeners worldwide with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and uh, to better protect the privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel site. I sincerely appreciate all of you who tune in from all over the world. And if you're interested in being a sponsor or advertiser for my radio show, please also get in touch. And for those of you in Africa or close to Antarctica, if you need help with information security or privacy, please let me know. I've been to the other continents, but not to these, at least not yet. And I would love to visit your areas to do work for you and then do some exploring while I'm there. Thanks also for all of your questions you're sending me. I love getting all of these questions. Even if I can't answer them all immediately, I do want to get them and also oftentimes answer them on air. So please keep sending them. My October Privacy Professor Tips message was published on September 28. Did you get yours? Well, if not, please go ahead and sign up for them. They've always been free. You could sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who your privacy hero is. This could be at your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. Now for my tip for today. My tip relates to one area where the majority of the population really falls down and that's securing their accounts and devices that require personal identification numbers or PINs for authentication. Now, we were reminded of how people have such poor practices when the world, I think, witnessed Kanye West keying in his mobile phone password, which was 00000, on October 11th, just a few days ago this year, 2018. Now, this seemed ridiculous, right? Well, most people are still using horribly weak pin numbers, and I think I actually might do a full show on all the risks involved someday. But for now, I want to give you just a few tips for choosing a good pin. So, first of all, never use consecutive numbers like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, or zero, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three as a pin. Don't do that. Never use the same number as a pen. In other words, don't pull a Kanye and use all zeros or all sevens or whatever. Never use famous dates or current dates. For example, don't use 07041776. Do you recognize that? July 4th 1776? Uh, In the US, uh, if you know your history, that will seem familiar to you. Never use a sequence of numbers that you've publicly posted like on your social media site. Never use your phone number as a PIN. I still find so many people that do this. Never use your social security number as a PIN. Don't use your zip code as a PIN, your home address. Never use your or your family member's birth dates as PINs. Now here's what you should do. Use a PIN that you can remember but won't be publicly available. For instance, maybe the date that you got engaged is December 22nd, 1999. So that date uh, would be 12221999. So that might be a good pin for you. Or maybe the date you graduated from college is June 6, 2011. So that pin would be 06062011. And use a pin that is long as possible. The longer, the better. I've known people that actually had a three-digit pin. And they could have had longer. So use as long as possible. And if you ever uh, suspect that someone has discovered your pin, change it right away. Also, related to this, if you ever sell your phone or other device that you use pins on, then choose a new and different pin for your new phone or device. Even if you think that you've removed your pin from your device before selling it, you might have that pin stored somewhere in memory or storage in that device or in an app cloud that you weren't aware of. So today, I am doing the fourth in my series of shows on voting security. You know, almost every day, it seems, there are more reports of voting security problems. On October 15th of this year, 2018, there was a report from cybersecurity research firms Anomaly Labs and Intel 471. And they claimed that various voter registration data on up to 35 million U.S. voters in as many as 19 states was found for sale online. It said that on October 5th, Voter registration records for Texas, Georgia, and at least 17 more states were offered for sale on the dark web hacking forum, RAID Forums. And it was made available by a known illicit vendor, uh, a figure named Downloading. Now, the data reportedly included names, addresses, voting histories, and other types of associated voting data. So how much were they trying to sell this data for, or are they selling this data for? Well, it's interesting. They started at $150 for the data from some states, but then for other states, they were asking as much as $12,500 for this data. The research firm stated that, quote, to our knowledge, this represents the first reference on the criminal underground of actors selling or distributing lists of 2018 voter registration data, including. US voters' personally identifiable information and voting history end quote. Now there was another report on October 16th of this year, 2018, from Kim Zetter on Motherboard and this was reported and also videos were made available that were made by a researcher in Michigan about he how he, he defeated the security used by counties across his state To protect the ballot cases that store voting machines and the ports that store the memory cards on optical scan machines. The electronic voting machines that record the paper ballots are scanned into them. The report stated that he could defeat the security without leaving evidence of tampering. And related to data security, of course, is accuracy of data. Data integrity is one of the key primary components of data security, maintaining integrity. And this accuracy is also a huge issue right now throughout many, possibly most, states for voter registrations. Now, Georgia may be the most high-profile instance that you're hearing about in the news today. Uh, They have a new law requiring an exact match for voter registration names and related information with the IDs that people are presenting at the voting poll sites that has, as of October 18th of this year, put 53,000 voter registrations in Georgia in a pending category. And on the news, we're hearing how many are fearing that it's not going to allow their votes to be counted because of the mismatch. So this exact match discrepancy could result from an extra space maybe or a period in the registration info that's not in the ID itself or a typo made by someone inputting the registration data um, or in the ID that is being used, and, and, you know, a whole wide range of other possibilities. Now, just think, we now have probably millions of online applications that take such small disparities into consideration when doing identification matching processes, but now the exact match law seem to be written in such a way that it does not consider such common instances. So, that's another issue to think about. Well, I'm happy and very grateful to have a true voting insider on the show today, a voting elections official and also a voting security expert. Today, I'm happy to speak with Jenya Coulter. Ginya is an experienced election professional, and she's an election security expert and was recently named As one of the top 25 women in election security and tech, Ms. Coulter began her career in sound design and audio engineering attending Musicians Institute, and after a successful career as a turntablist and disc jockey, Ginya transitioned into the world of elections, serving her adopted home of Polk County, Florida, as a precinct clerk and branch manager for several important elections. Now, during that time, Ginya's popular Twitter account attracted the notice of the U.S. Vote Foundation, and she currently serves as their social media program manager. During her time at U.S. Vote, Jinia developed a passion for election cybersecurity and incident response and is currently pursuing a degree in cybersecurity as well as earning her Security Plus and Cyber SA certifications. Jinia, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Oh, I'm looking forward to our conversation, and I think it would be helpful to uh, level set our global listeners about general elections in the U.S. So what types of security and privacy rules and laws requirements do you actually have at the federal level, and then what types are at the state level?
2: All right. Elections in America can sometimes be complicated because we have 10,000 voting jurisdictions, and no two are Mm -hmm. alike. And the original um, Voter Privacy Act was something called the 15th Amendment, which gave voters the right to cast a secret ballot. Before that, voters used to vote using a system called Viva Voce, and they'd literally have to stand and tell people who they voted for for it to be counted. (laughs) And secret ballots made it a lot safer for people to vote, and they had a reasonable modicum of peace knowing that their employer or union boss or anybody would not know how they voted. Mm -hmm. And as far as federal regulations at this point, it's still in its infancy. Um, There's a great deal of um, interest and help that we've been receiving from the Department of Homeland Security, but there's no major federal standards quite yet. I think just because this is something that we've, it's really only been around about two to four years.
1: Right. I mean, we're especially aware of it uh, recently in the past few years. So, you know, in your role, um, what type of decisions impacting voting and ballot security and privacy are there, if any, that are controlled at the local level?
2: Um, for For the most part, elections are run by states and counties. Um, That's a provision in, I believe, the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. And different states uh, have different needs, and they have different security protocols. Um, Florida has pretty decent ballot security. Um, Some states are catching up. Um, Cybersecurity, as I'm sure you know, is not exactly cheap. And at this point, a lot of the participation is voluntary, but there is a lot of help from the Election Assistance Commission and, again, DHS, in helping people um, or helping departments harden their systems and protect against future attacks.
1: Well, elections are so complex anyway, right? I mean, there's so much that you have to do. So when you start thinking about all these responsibilities then, what... Actual responsibilities, and again, I understand there's different laws in in all the different locations, but, you know, as the different election officials are coming up to an election or even planning one a year out, what type of of information security and privacy-related responsibilities do they have? And then, you know, what are they actually, in your experience and what you've seen throughout the U.S., what are they Than doing to help address those different uh, responsibilities and associated risks?
2: I'm so glad you asked that. Um, Now, the first goal of the election officials before anything else is records custodian. They are entrusted with the records of their voters. And so protecting the voter registration, which in a lot of cases is public, sometimes there's a very delicate balance between public information and keeping people's information private. And that's also why um, sometimes voter record or voter rolls are, that's why certain states charge 12500 They don't want the information getting into the wrong hands.
1: Ah, okay. And so of- that, well, I was going to say so, to my example of the news at the beginning, then probably those states that have keep it, you know, so it's not public, you're saying that those are probably the ones that are getting the most high dollar on the, the dark web. Yes. Although,
2: in West Virginia, it cost 2000 to buy the to buy the voter rolls, and they were selling it for $500. I'm oh. sorry, I think that person failed business math 101.
1: <laughs> really? Well, maybe they were hoping for, you know, many, many buyers, right, to uh, make it more like a McDonald's type of service, I guess.
2: That could be. Um, and as far as, now the counties in my county are taking election security with utmost seriousness. I re- recently went to watch um, machine testing at another county, and in the front office, everybody had a sign on their, at their cubicle that listed the different types of phishing attacks, how to spot them, and what, to, what to do if you suspect that there may be a phishing attack. Oh, that's
1: great. So then you're, you're going is. through kind of um, like scenarios and role-playing, and is that a type of then training, um, considered to be a type of training that's being provided to the elections officials in that manner then?
2: Yes. Both the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI have launched um, what are called tabletop exercises, So election officials from all over a given state will come to this summit and they will practice um, tabletop scenarios. And then with what they learn at the summit, they go back and they help develop training protocols for the people
1: who work at the office. And how about all of the folks who volunteer? Because, you know, where I'm based in Des Moines, Iowa. And when I go to my polling location, a lot of the folks there who are manning uh, doing a lot of the work are volunteers from the neighborhood. Uh, do they get generally uh, some training before they actually show up to help check people in, or how does that typically work?
2: I think with, um, with, elect- with um, poll workers, because it's such a temporary position, the main emphasis is if you see something strange, let the precinct captain know so they can call the office and the office
1: can investigate. Uh, okay, so the precinct captain is there and they're the ones that are, are probably watching then. Like, you know, in the news, we hear about people physically taking some of the voting machines apart and all that. So there, there are folks who are there in addition to the volunteers to kind of keep an eye on those types of things.
2: Well, that's um, that's actually my job since I am precinct clerk and early voting branch manager. And ah. one of the things that we do have a rule in my state, the ballot box operator must stand within three and a half to four feet in front of the ballot box at all times. And if they have to take a break, then I get called in to stand in front of it.
1: Okay. But then, like you mentioned earlier, it sounds like that's something that might vary from state to state, right? Every state has different rules.
2: Absolutely. I can't speak necessarily for other states, but I can tell
1: you what we do in Florida. Right. And I think that's something that confuses so many in our population. I mean, uh, in the U.S., but also when I talk with some of my, my friends and business colleagues in other countries, I think a lot of people assume that the elections are all following, uh, in all the states, are following the same basic requirements, especially when it comes to security and privacy, but that's just simply not the case, right?
2: Well, there are certain standards and best practices, but Mm -hmm. the states are not necessarily bound to follow them. The ones they are bound to follow are things set forth in something like the um, National Voter Registration Act or the Help America
1: Vote Act, now, and those are, make, those
2: are rules that, such as provisional balloting,
1: something like that. Okay. So uh, about those two rules that you mentioned, can you maybe provide just a very high-level description of what each of those does? I mean, we don't need to go you know, deep into them, but I think that might this might be the first time that a lot of our listeners have even heard of those laws before.
2: Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, the National Voter Registration Act, or the motor voter law, was the one that um, allowed you to register to vote at the Department of Motor Vehicles or any public government office. And it also set forth rules that specified how election officials needed to maintain their state and local voter rolls, and mm-hmm. how people need to be taken off or added in. And the Help America Vote Act is, was introduced in 2002 after the Florida fiasco, which we're still talking mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. and the Help America Vote Act extended protections for voters. Um, it certainly increased access to the ballot box for those living with a disability, and it also set forth if there were problems at a polling place, voters were entitled to something called a provisional ballot.
1: Yes, and we've been hearing a lot about those provisional ballots with that uh, the exact match law that I mentioned to earlier, right? Mhm. So, for those who might not n- remember, in Florida, uh, the, the the elections uh, that took place that you know you referenced earlier. Um, if you look up hanging chads, I think you'll probably find them. But talking about those types of of actual ballots, do we even use those types of ballots anymore? Um, the punch card ballots, not anymore. Although my
2: first few elections in Los Angeles County as a young woman, I was using something called an Inca vote. And those were... They looked like glorified Kino cards, and you would use an ink stylus to to punch in your answers. But the problem with those ballots is you couldn't tell if you'd made a mistake when you cast it. So Florida, then I moved to Florida, and we Mm use optical scan paper ballots, which gives you a list of the candidates and the issues. And then you could just fill in the bubble for who you would like to vote for.
1: Okay, so it's very interesting um, how we've evolved over the years with regard to how we're actually um, how we're actually doing our voting and so on. So let's talk a little bit with, uh, related to the ballots. Um, let's talk a little bit about your concerns for absentee voting. Because, you know, you hear about absentee voting and some of the, the concerns people have, maybe they're justified or not, but what are some of your concerns for the security of the hard copy absentee ballot processes?
2: I think the, one of the biggest revelations in absentee balloting came when election departments teamed up with the U.S. Postal Service to introduce a more consistent and uniform way of transmitting ballots. And... A way to track ballots. Um, some states don't have ballot trackers, but the uh, states that do have ballot trackers, they've got a much better shot of having the ballots be accepted in the
1: end. Well, I'm surprised that they don't have ballot trackers. I mean, here in Iowa, that is something since I do travel for business, I usually vote absentee ballot, and that's one thing I, I can check online. Um, to see if my ballot was, you know, received, if it was processed, whatever. So it's kind of surprising to me that some states don't actually do that. It, I don't know, it seems like kind of a big vulnerability there.
2: Um, And some states, to be fair, don't have as many absentee voters. So it probably hasn't really crossed anybody's mind. But states that do all vote by mail or that are more reliant on vote by mail Definitely, ballot trackers are a godsend. And in, in my county, there is an additional privacy measure. If you're tracking your ballot, not only do you have to enter your name and birth date, you also have to enter the numbers of your house.
1: Oh, Okay, so you're, you're requiring three different types of information in order to get to that, um, that information about the tracking online then. It's um, a very
2: nice feature, and it will let you know if your ballot was tabulated, if it was received, if it's in the mail, It's
1: definitely a nice feature. Yeah, definitely, especially, you know, here in uh, 2016 in Iowa, I think there was one of the very uh, few instances of attempted voter fraud because one woman had voted absentee, but then she was afraid it wasn't received or counted, so she showed up to vote on election day. So it was, she was caught basically trying to vote twice, but, um, you know, that would have helped her if she would have seen <laughs> seen that it actually was uh, gotten and uh, was counted. So, you know, right now we have uh, time that we need to take for a quick break from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. We are speaking today with Jenya Coulter about voting and election security. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as provide suggestions for other show topics using my email, Harold at RebeccaHarreld.com and also through my privacyguidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold & Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about simbus 360com The Simbus system includes information security, privacy and compliance management, policies, procedures and forms, third party and vendor management, training and awareness. Breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Simbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also Cyber Liability Insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Simbus system. Visit Simbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. That's RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor.
1: Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host Rebecca Harold. We are speaking today with Jenya Coulter from the U.S. Vote Foundation about voting and election security. So let's continue our conversation. When we went to the break, we had started talking about absentee voting and uh, you know some of the issues related. Now there are. 19 states in the U.S. right now, plus the District of Columbia, that allows some voters to return their ballots via email. And, of course, when you think of email, you don't think of security typically. So, Jenya, do you have any concerns for these methods of returning absentee ballots via email?
2: I think the people who are most affected by this are our overseas voters, and Sometimes there's just no, you have to pick the the least of the evils, because Mm -hmm. not everybody has the ability to get their ballot back by a post on time.
1: Mm -hmm. Some
2: states have much longer grace periods than others. So although email is definitely not ideal, and there's certainly a risk, encrypted email is probably better than a fax, at least for now.
1: Right. Well, are those um, absentee ballots that are submitted through e- email, are they then encrypted um, when they're sent back? I believe they are, but
2: you always want to – but remember, encryption is only as good as the type of encryption used.
1: Exactly. Yes. And that probably, again, varies state by state. And
2: I'm not really – I don't think any election office has gone up to homomorphic encryption for ballot return. So that remains to be seen, although I would like to see
1: that. I think our yeah. voters deserve the chance to cast their ballots. Oh, definitely. Well, and then you talked about fax. So there's 26 states right now, plus the District of Columbia, that allow some of their voters to return their ballots via fax. And, of course, fax transmissions have a lot of, of risks as well. So uh, what are your concerns about faxing the ballots?
2: If there's no other way to get your ballot in, then by all means, but it's certainly not ideal. And then you do run into the issue with chain of custody once the ballot's been Mm -hmm. sent by the fax. You pick it up, and then it could very easily be altered if you don't have people watching what's going on.
1: Right. Uh, So, well, and how about also – you know, the web-based portals. There's actually four states now that I'm aware of, and you can correct me if I'm I'm leaving any out, but I think um, Arizona, Colorado, Missouri, and North Dakota allow some of their voters to return their ballots through a web-based portal, and of course, there's risk with doing that type of activity also, because a lot of breaches have commonly occurred through web-based portals. So, what are your concerns for returning ballots through the web-based portals? And then what would you like to see done to improve the security of that method?
2: Fortunately, Colorado in particular has really excellent security, as, and they're very well-versed in cybersecurity. I've actually witnessed them run an election, and they definitely are a big proponents of transport layer security on their sites. And oh, so I'm less worried about Colorado, but... Some of the other states, you definitely want to make sure that there isn't or a distributed denial of service attack, or anybody's mm-hmm. intercepting the information while it's being transmitted.
1: Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if if um, that type of voting would become very popular? The disruption that could occur through a DDoS or distributed denial of service attack through that website on election day that could really cause some some havoc. Uh, for sure.
2: Yeah, so, I think Colorado might be able to bounce back from that because they're an all vote by mail state and this is what they do. But at the same time, it's, it's one of those things where, again, it's not an ideal situation. You just have to pick the most secure of the 3
1: Mm-hmm. Well, what do you see? You know, I mentioned at the the start of the show Um, one of the voter ID related types of um, issues with the integrity of the the data. What kind of security and privacy problems and risks do you see with the current voter ID requirements throughout the U.S.? And what would you recommend or like to see be done to help mitigate those risks? I think you
2: want to make sure that data is entered as accurately as humanly possible because one data entry error can cause a mess of trouble later on down the line. And you also want to make sure that your database software is secured properly. Um, there have been a lot of problems in the election world using unsecured cloud servers. Okay. And as we know, cloud is just somebody else's computer. hmm well with the, the voter the, I, To register to vote oh sorry. No, go ahead. Um to register to vote online it requires giving a little more personally identifiable information than say if you were filling out a form at the election office and handing it in or registering at the DMV.
1: One of the things I've noticed through the years too is, you know, again with that voter ID issue. Um, oftentimes, and again, because there's so many volunteers, you know, from your neighborhood, usually at the polling sites, if, you, if that's where you're voting. Um, when you go, a lot of times, like, maybe they'll have your middle initial. And, you know, when they ask you who you are, you say, you know, your full name, or maybe you say your nickname uh, and your last name. And that's always worked before. So I guess I think a lot of people are kind of concerned that, what used to work for them with regard to the fact that, you know, that's almost another layer of validation if if your neighbors actually know who you are because, you know, you live in the same area as they do. That's another type of validating identity. And I know in large cities why that's not always the case, but there's so many smaller um Areas throughout the the U.S. It seems like that would be something that would be considered with uh, these exact match type of laws and the the voter ID. I'm kind of surprised that they don't make the laws a little bit more um, realistic with regard to that's how so many of the different areas do vote. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or or maybe from the you know the voting official perspective, um, how to address some of those different issues?
2: I'm not sure exact match is necessarily making anybody any safer. I think what it is doing is it's creating far more problems for poll workers and for voters.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the nice
2: things about being a poll worker is you learn if there's an issue, you have to be able to figure things out, think on your feet and, you know, solve it on the fly. And sometimes it's just as simple as going, could you be listed under a different name? Are you mm. under, would you be in under a nickname? And having the discretion to be able to look that up and serve the voter, I think outweighs any minimal security risk that that might
1: potentially present. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that just seems pretty logical. Um So when you get to these different laws, of course, there's the issue of having ballots that are invalidated, not only by laws, but maybe somebody didn't fill out their ballot correctly or maybe um, something went wrong with the the scanner that, that took the ballot in. Do you know approximately what percentage of ballots are invalidated each general election year and maybe some of the reasons why they're invalidated?
2: It definitely depends on the state, but I can tell you the most common reason is because of something called an overvote, and that's where you vote for more than one candidate in a given race, and mm-hmm. those, sometimes that can, that race, the, um, your vote will be voided out. Now, there's also something called an undervote, but an undervote's not as big of an issue. It just means you didn't vote for that particular race, So, and as your... far as some of the physical...
1: Well, before we get to the physical, so with the overvote, so is that like if I went in to vote and I I checked somebody and it's like, oh, darn, I didn't want to vote for, you know, I, I was one off. Maybe I didn't look at the ballot correctly, so I try to erase it and I put my mark elsewhere and maybe the the scanner picks up both of them because I didn't erase it completely. Is that kind of the situation that you're talking about there? That would be,
2: although if that does happen – Ballot scanners today can actually tell you, hey, you overvoted. Would you like to spoil this ballot and have you be issued a new one? Or it'll uh-huh. let you cast it if you don't care.
1: Okay, so after I stick my ballot into the reader after I voted, then uh, that's when it should come back and tell me that maybe I need to vote again.
2: Yes, certain, certain ballot scanners can do this, not all of them, but most of the modern ones will tell you, hey, uh, would you like to get this fixed?
1: Well, that's good. I, I hadn't uh, noticed that, but like you said, it depends on the, the equipment being used. Then you started to talk about the physical. So, yeah, tell me about the physical reasons why they might be invalidated. If
2: somebody fills out a ballot in a red or glitter pen, the scanner can't pick it up.
1: Glitter pen. So are you saying folks that are actually voting with, like, red or glitter pens?
2: Yes, ask any city or county clerk, this has happened, and it, you never stop wondering about it. That's why we oh. give people, that's why we give our voters a specific type of pen when we issue them their ballot.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so that way yeah, we yeah. can
2: minimize that problem.
1: I had not even thought about that, and uh, that's so interesting. Well, you know, it makes sense. There's a lot of different types of writing tools out there, aren't there? Uh, yes, there so, are. <laughs> so talking then about other new types of things like uh, we've been talking about, what are your thoughts on the new mobile voting apps being used for the first time in West Virginia to allow those overseas in the military in certain locations to uh, cast their absentee ballots? I mean, do you, what what concerns, if any, do you have about the security of the full life cycle of of the voting process for those types of apps?
2: Well, this is certainly a loaded debate. Um, I've seen Mm -hmm. people who are passionate about blockchain-based voting and other people who think it's the work of the devil incarnate. (laughs) I'm somewhere in the middle. I don't think the full secure technology is there yet, and it probably won't be for a very long time. And I do have concern with having to use a biometric identifier so the voter can identify themselves you know, like a fingerprint, you Mm -hmm. want to know who has that and who happens to have that information.
1: And you want to make sure that the
2: vendor site is secure as well.
1: Yeah. Well, and then how do you know that uh, someone didn't go ahead and register for a person that they know is overseas or maybe overseas with them and they got a hold of their phone and, you know, registered to use their fingerprint or did their selfie photo instead. I mean, I guess, is that being matched with your understanding since they also have to use either a copy of their passport or driver's license?
2: Um, That is a concern. Um, I think the main, the other argument, I think, against blockchain besides the security issue is it requires a lot of processing power. Mm-hmm. and so i'm not sure it's necessarily the most efficient use of processing resources either in, in addition to some of the security returns concerns
1: right right because from the way this particular app that they're using in west virginia is being implemented from my understanding and um, let me know if I leave anything out, but like they have to use a, a copy of either their passport or driver's license, just not their military ID, but some sort of government photo ID. And then what I thought was interesting that was that then they had to create a self video, a short self video to verify identity and then use their fingerprint or video selfie. And then, like you ch- said, use blockchain. So uh, it, it sounds very interesting, and but complicated. And also, like you said, it it's just uh, takes a lot of, of processing power and capabilities to to get it to work for that particular voter.
2: I think it's one of those things where, I mean, if you think about it, 500 years ago, they said man would never fly. And I think about that every time I'm being put in a metal tube along with my luggage and rocketed across an ocean to another continent.
1: Well, that's true. I think has
2: got its applications for elections, but I'm just not sure we're there yet.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and that's, uh, you know, like a lot of people have said, well, maybe this is a good way to test it out. But I guess coming from a systems engineering background, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'd like to do a lot more testing in a environment that wasn't the actual voting, you know, <laughs> environment that uh, was in a real election yet. But maybe uh, I guess we'll we'll find out hopefully after all said and done in the general election, how well everything went. Um, so many applications to register to vote, Let's we go from high tech, right? Let's go to the very lowest tech that we can get to, which is also many of the longest uh, serving types of ways to register to vote, and that's on postcards. And it seems like there's still a lot of areas where you fill out your voter registration on postcards, but there's a lot of personal information on their postcards. Do you have any concerns about the security or privacy of the information on those postcards, and why or why not? I absolutely
2: have security concerns about this. You never know who's going through your mailbox, Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: I really don't think adding an envelope to provide just an additional safeguard is that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Also, there's the risk of those postcards not getting to the election office. They could be intercepted somewhere along the way, and that person
1: then has all of your information. And it's pretty sensitive information in in many cases. I mean, you could take that to do then other types of identity fraud or identity theft beyond just the elections activities. And also, we
2: could just mistakenly throw the postcard away by mistake.
1: Yes, yes. It reminds me of uh, the the old Seinfeld uh, series. I don't know if you ever watched that, but there was one of the friends that was actually the male – delivery person and you know he got to a point where one episode he was just hoarding all the mail in his apartment is like oh my gosh so <laughs> you wouldn't want to have your mail especially that has to do with uh, exercising your right to vote being lost in somebody's apartment somewhere either Numa, absolutely and
2: name. also in Georgia the precinct cards are almost mm-hmm. indistinct my ca- old county in Georgia the precinct cards are indistinguishable. From the, from the postcard bill from the sanitation company.
1: Really? Well, that seems um, really <laughs> interesting. That, that seems like a design flaw or maybe it was the same person that designed it and thought might as well just go with what we've been using. Hmm.
2: It's definitely a design flaw that could be vastly improved.
1: Yes, yes. Well, so what are your biggest concerns about voting and elections security and privacy for our upcoming November 6th election? I mean, it's only a few weeks away.
2: I think the main concern is that um, everything during the the early voting processes, um, the systems are secure, that nobody's trying to intercept network traffic, and also that nobody's trying to interfere with the internet-facing supervisory components on things like central count ballot scanners.
1: Mm. So what would you like like, to see to help improve that?
2: I'd like to see a focus on hardening of the systems of the parts of elections that fall into the ICS SCADA category, because it's not all enterprise IT.
1: Mm -hmm. And I definitely
2: want to make sure that registration databases are properly secured.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So a lot of our listeners, you know, we have a lot of folks that come from an IT background, but we have a whole lot of folks listening who um, don't come from an IT background. So maybe could you provide a little bit more when you're talking about the SCADA systems and how the elections systems are related uh, or should be considered that maybe provide a little bit of explanation for those who aren't familiar with that term? You know what that really means.
2: All right. Um, Election systems are two parts. There's the things like the electronic poll books, the general election management systems. Those are things that would be considered enterprise IT. They work sort of like the things you see in the in in an office. And then there are parts of elections like super high-powered ballot scanners, ballot printing presses, and um, database servers that are more industrial control systems. And one of the weakest links is on any system is an internet facing supervisory component on one of the big industrial control systems. Um, whenever anybody tells me any things are air gapped, I think, yes, so are the centrifuges that got hit by
1: Stuxnet. Mm-hmm. Well, you really how many have to
2: of those? make sure that that supervisory component is secured.
1: Yeah, and, and how many would you um, estimate? of our different elections uh, pieces of hardware are now wirelessly enabled. I mean, they're enabled to connect um, in wireless ways to other components. And it seems like those are definitely some weak points throughout the whole elections uh, system, uh, cybersecurity system.
2: I am and breathlessly awaiting the dawn of WPA3 enterprise encryption in election system.
1: <laughs> it should be coming soon, right? At least uh, we're, we're getting that uh, increased type of encryption that's going to be rolling out soon. Um, so with regard to what you're doing now – We have just, uh, you know, a couple of weeks away uh, from our initial air date here of this episode. We're just really a little over two weeks away from the elections here in the U.S. So what is it that you're focusing on as an elections official right now to prepare for uh, election day?
2: I want to make sure that the networks stay up and we don't have any issues with anything with the system going down. Because in early voting, you do need to have some form of electronic poll book to process your voters. If you didn't, you would have a paper poll book that literally no human being on this earth could lift. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that the information that's getting entered and updated stays secure, especially during transmission to the election office. And you also want to make sure that when you transmit results at the end of the night from the ballot scanners, those go to the election office securely as well.
1: So you're doing a little bit of uh, testing and running through uh, some actual processes that are going to be on election day, but you're doing that on your own ahead of time, basically.
2: Yes. You just, again, if you see something, say something. If you think something seems off, you definitely want to let the main office know because if they don't know about it, they can't do anything
1: about it. Right. Well,
0: in the last
1: uh, two minutes that we have here, what? Final thought, do you want to leave with our listeners today? And, again, we have listeners from all over the world of varying backgrounds in security and privacy and tech. But what would you like to leave with our listeners today about voting security and privacy and maybe even uh, calls to action, if any?
2: Oh, well, it's been said that you cannot defend what you don't know, own, or control And I think everybody in elections, we all know our niche, but sometimes we don't know as much about some of the other areas. And I think we really need to work together and make a concentrated effort. And it's not always about preventing an attack. Sometimes it's about how resilient you are if something happens. Mm
1: -hmm. It's
2: not about how you fall. It's if you get up.
1: And also, election
2: security on its best day is complicated. There's so many logistical (laughs) and technical issues. It's actually kind of a miracle that nobody's died during a freak loading accident.
1: Now, there's there's a vision uh, to imagine, right? So, uh, Well, thank you so much. You've given us such great information, and I really appreciate having the insider's view on election security as well. So thank you, Virginia, for being on the show today. You've provided so many great insights on voting and election security.
2: Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. I had a wonderful time, and I really appreciate your inviting me.
1: Yeah, and hopefully tell everyone out there in the U.S., make sure you go vote, right?
2: (laughs) I will. I will be yelling about elections till the day I lay down and die.
1: Yes, okay, (laughs) thanks. Uh, Today we've been speaking with Jenya Coulter from the U.S. Vote Foundation about voting security. Now you can go see more about Jenya at her LinkedIn page and at my Voice America business show site. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all of my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, and all the other apps. And of course, you can go to voiceamerica.com to the Business Channel website. Also, please contact me for information security and privacy, compliance keynotes. Uh, I've been an expert witness and also for information about my CIMBAS360.com security and privacy cloud services. And if you're curious why well, you can visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see my appearances on the CWIowa Live morning show and see the topics we discuss there each month. Also, get in touch with me using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities go to your job and do your daily work or encounter anything else involving personal information and how it is secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy and certainly as you go to vote in the U.S. or in any other country. Um, Notice what's going on. And like Ginny said, if you notice something, say something. Say something to the folks there at your poll site if uh, you have a concern about security and privacy while you're there. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now.
0: you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.